Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, dear listeners. This is Kate Riga. I'm here to make a quick pitch that you consider becoming a TPM Prime member. TPM has used the member model for over a decade now, and our loyal members are the only reason we've been able to weather the turbulence of the media landscape and avoid the fate that has befallen so many other independent outlets. For $60 a year, you get no paywall, fewer ads, access to the Hive member forum, a members-only newsletter, and more. For $120 a year, you get all of that, plus no ads at all. Without our members, there is no podcast, not to mention that I'm out of a job. Thank you so much for listening and supporting us. We couldn't do it without you. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast with Kate Riga. Yesterday, we had what was kind of maybe going to be, I don't know it's, if it's the first showdown, the first feat of strength for Mike Johnson, the new Speaker of the House, but it went in a kind of a funny sideways way. The headline, as you've probably already seen by the time you listen to this podcast, was that House Republicans and really the House Freedom Caucus let Mike Johnson do what Kevin McCarthy had done, and it had got him fired as House Speaker, which is to say uh, he couldn't get something worked out with, he couldn't get something passed by his own Republican caucus. So he decided to just say, hey, Democrats, can we just get together and pass a kind of a, it's not a clean CR, but it's a, you know, lightly soiled CR. I don't know what you want to put it. it. It didn't have the poison pills that get you a government shutdown. Obviously, Democrats and a lot of Republicans wanted Ukraine aid put in there, Israel aid, all this kind of stuff. Uh, Republicans ended up with just, we're just going to kind of keep the lights on for, you know, a a little while longer, see what we can get worked out. We're not going to give you that, that aid. But I think everybody on Capitol Hill, even though that was not ideal, no one wants to have a, a big crisis shut down, so we're just going to kick the can down the road. But while that was happening, and it's still not quite clear to me if this is a matter of press boredom or whether these things are kind of connected in some way, I think it's a little of each, but I think there's certainly some of the latter. You had, you know, this one guy uh, who's who's you know, this Mark Wayne guy, I don't know where they get these names, Uh, one newly minted senator uh, challenging the head of the Teamsters Union to kind of take it outside and let's, you know, solve this with our fists, you know, this this kind of weird stuff. And then the other thing is Kevin McCarthy, I was going to say speaker, you know, ex-speaker Kevin McCarthy. And there's one detail about this that's especially weird. He like elbowed a, a kind of a House Freedom Caucus guy, just just walking by, kind of sh- you know, kind of gave him an elbow in the side, and 
you know, that's weird. These are grown men, right? I mean, this what is this like high school? And it seems like Kate came up with or pointed out to me that I guess this isn't the first time that McCarthy has done this. It's like this kind of like, you know, 17-year-old varsity football bro antics, right? The kind of, he kind of shoves somebody to make them kind of lose their temper and then kind of take it from there. But anyway, then Matt Gates went to the ethics committee, filed an ethics report on Kevin McCarthy. While you had this non-spectacle of, I think everybody collectively just not having the energy to do that nonsense again that we were doing a month ago with constant speaker elections and threat down shuts and stuff like that. Everybody just, they, they can't do it anymore. So they just kind of agreed to put it, put every, you know, just uh, kick the can down the road. But at the same time, you have this just weirdness with like threats of fist fights and shoving matches and stuff. And you're just kind of, what's going on here? What's going on here? Is, is 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 the world just kind of falling apart? Is 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 no one able to conduct themselves in in a remotely serious way? So I want to get to this because this is Kate's coverage area, and she's up there. So I want to get a feel for what exactly was going on up there. So we're going to talk about all that. We're going to talk about these brawls, and then we're gonna we're gonna. Uh, Towards the end of the episode, we're going to discuss some like light fascism or not so light, because as you've probably been seeing in the background, Donald Trump increasingly over the last few weeks has upped the whole thing a notch, right? He, he's now in his speeches or in his social media posts saying things that you know, you could find on like propaganda posters in like Germany in the, in the early 1930s. It's really not an exaggeration. So we're going to get to all of that. But Kate, you you were there. What 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 was what was the feel? What was going on up there? Did it all seem part of one picture, or was just this just a bunch of random stuff that that some some reporters pulled into some fictive storyline? Yeah, I think there's a lot going on. So let's just kind of first start with the shutdown aversion and, and kind of silo that for a minute. So like you said, what happened here is that Mike Johnson did exactly what Kevin McCarthy did in all pieces, you know, including kind of fainting towards that he was going to cater to the hard right of the party for, you know, a few days, weeks, kind of as, as it got closer. And then the inevitable caving to work with Democrats, realizing that you can't pass anything with just Republicans that, you know, has any chance of of really passing the House, much less the Senate. So that's how we ended up with this, as you say, essentially a clean CR. The only kind of quote unquote right wing win is the fact that it's laddered or, you know, really kind of step stooled because there it's in two pieces, basically. So the expiration of the funding will come in late January for some agencies and then late February for the others, which... Johnson tried to make a great hay out of um, and it kind of at his press conference going on and on about how, you know, he's not concerned about the precarity of his position vis-a-vis -vis the Kevin McCarthy position because, you know, this is a this is a totally different situation. Like he's created a new vehicle. It's going to change the way we do this. You know, it's, it's totally different than McCarthy. And then not mention the fact that it's passed on the backs of Democrats that, you know, it's a clean CR. It has no poison pills in it. They Democrats had to give up essentially nothing in exchange for their votes, aside from the fact that they're not like 
super thrilled that it comes in two parts. But, you know, most of them even kind of got a little bit of a win in terms of the expiration dates going beyond Christmas and avoiding the case that they just have an omnibus bill kind of stuffed down their throats right before everyone leaves for the holidays. So all that being said, it's just kind of crazy that here we are after seeing all these speakership candidacies kind of flare up and be extinguished just as quickly and this mass chaos for weeks. And the situation is more or less exactly the same as when McCarthy was in office. None of the dynamics have changed. The hard right makes themselves, you know, impossible to govern, impossible to kind of pass anything on the backs of. So the speaker is forced to kind of go to the Democrats. And the only difference here is that, you know, I spent the day kind of going around and asking these hard right guys and the, and the people who ousted McCarthy, like what possible justification could there be for not punishing Johnson for doing the exact same thing you punished McCarthy for? And they just did very of, you know, he, he's the new kid. He's only been in this post for a few weeks. He doesn't own this situation. Um, but most of them were very quick to kind of attach to the end and be sure this goodwill will not stretch into January and February when these uh, stop gaps expire. So and that's how everyone's been talking, you know, like even Johnson kept being like, well, we're going to you know get to the nuts and the bolts of it in January and February. And it's like, sure, right. When all these dynamics are exactly the same as now, except there's no impending major holiday that gives people any kind of impetus to want to leave and get things done. Right. So what I what I was kind of confused about, I mean, we, I think we all knew that at least on this first round, it would just be too ridiculous to kind of to oust their own guy you know, what, three weeks in or something like that. So I think we all knew he would get a pass. But I was, I was, and, and, you know, maybe that is a, you know, a complete explanation right there. But I was struck by how great the aversion to a shutdown seems to be among Republicans, because I kind of would have thought that, you know, he'd at least take the new car out for a drive, right? shut it down for a few days just to show there's, you know, kind of a new sheriff in town. And yet what we saw is identical what happened in the spring with, uh, you know, with with the debt ceiling, what happened, what, two months ago when, when uh, McCarthy got fired, you know, down to the wire, down to the wire, get to the wire, Democrats, hello, check please, right? I mean, mm-hmm. j- ex- the exact same thing. And it did make me think, they're a little more worried about a shutdown than I maybe understood. And I think one part of that is they know it'll be damaging to them. Despite all the protestations, they know it'll be very damaging to them and damaging to them. And I think the only currency they understand, which is, and we might lose our majority next year because of it. Certainly Johnson doesn't want that. He's the king now. You want to you want to stay being king. But the other the other part of that is something that you brought up a few episodes ago, which is you know how it's going to end. It's going to end when the speaker realizes that the only way out is to make a deal with the Democrats. So do you want to make a deal with the Democrats at the you know at the beginning or shut the government down for 10 days and then make a deal with the Democrats. You're going to you're going to lose. So maybe just don't do it. That's kind of the only explanation that really holds water. 
Totally. And then you also have the extremely powerful force of the fact that these people are fundamentally enormous babies about having to work. And as they repeated so many times throughout the day yesterday, they've been in session for 10 weeks straight, no recess for two and a half months. And like, I do think that has this has to do with the Republican men getting into fisticuffs all day yesterday, which is that they are desperate to go home and they get, you know, most most of us peasant Americans get a day or two for Thanksgiving, but, you know, they'll get a, a much nicer, longer stretch um, and like try to try to rustle up some sympathy listener. Like, can you imagine what it must be like to have to work for 10 weeks straight? Like try to conjure up what that what that must be like. But there is like no thirst right now to be on the hill for longer and that does play in right you need people if they're gonna like fire johnson if they're gonna start this up again they're gonna be here for the duration i mean we saw how long it took them last time so that's a piece as well and i think even even just like the hardest right element who like does want to break government at every turn like they were pretty candid about the fact that it would be stupid to oust him after all the work it took to put him up and to put him in, you know, to boost him like, like you say, three weeks after he was finally selected. And I think basically no one has any confidence. It's not like there's a a rock star who didn't get thought of three weeks ago, right? I mean, who would it be if not like this random guy? I mean, some other random guy, right? So I think all those factors kind of are working together and his newness gives them a little bit of an out to be like, don't worry, we're going to be assholes in a few months, but we're, we're going to take a quick holiday interlude first. Now, what, here's okay, so here's one thing I want to ask and it gets to one of the fisticuffs questions, but it's a it's a kind of a random side thing, but I'm very curious about it. I mentioned in the intro that Kevin McCarthy allegedly, I guess there's some question about precisely what happened, was walking past one of the guys who voted to fire him and like elbowed him in the side. Okay. Now in the in the press reports I saw about this, it said Kevin McCarthy and his security detail walking through and he kind of elbows this guy. And I thought, how does he have a security detail? He's not speaker anymore. Do you, has this come up? Is this, I mean, does, what is that about? Do you have any idea? That's really interesting because, you know, he still has the speaker handle on Twitter as well, which seems less black and white government stuff, but still a little bit like, are you going to give that up at some point? (laughs) Um, That's funny. I, so I was right there when this happened, the McCarthy Burchett thing. And it was so what was to, to kind of paint the scene, Republicans meet for their conference meetings in like the dingiest, grossest corner of the Capitol you can possibly imagine. Like it the light is like dank and dark. There are exposed pipes running across the ceiling. And it's a super, super narrow kind of long hallway that leads to the conference room. And so when they're meeting in there during, you know, moments of import, the reporters were all like stacked against one of the walls where the the people who work at the Capitol for the press galleries keep you on that side. And all of the networks think it's really good TV to kind of like ambush the guys as they're coming out. So you've got On top of just all the bodies, you've also got, you know, the cameras and the little lighting, what have you. So so all this is going on. And then when any person who's kind of important comes out, everyone 
floods around them and it's so tight and then people coming up behind that person will try to like squeak through and it's like it's tight it's physical it's like if you're trying to kind of follow someone you're always you know you got to be aware not trip over their feet which I almost I did trip um Carlos Jimenez during the speakership thing and he was actually like kind of funny about it and pretend to fling his whole body into a wall but anyway so that's what it's like down there so and I was chasing McCarthy when he came out even though he wasn't saying anything so when he kind of got went by Burchett there's no it's not like a shot heard around the world right like nobody would have noticed and Burchett himself you could tell initially thought it was a joke because a lot of these dudes are like very back slappy with each other when they walk by so he said something kind of jokey McCarthy didn't respond and then you could kind of see it Burchett realize it wasn't whatever happened wasn't a joke right and then he yells after him like don't you have any cut guts, Kevin? Like, come back and face me or whatever. But Kevin, Kevin McCarthy, like whether I, you know, maybe it was a security detail if they say it, if other reporters said it was, I'm sure it was. But it just to me, it just looks like he was he had come out with a clump of, of people. Right. And right. so he just keeps walking. And then Burchett sprints after him and he's always wearing this tan coat all the time and it's like flapping behind him like kind of comically as he runs over and then McCarthy says some kind of and like I was running along with them and then McCarthy said something a denial kind of like oh I, I I don't know what you're talking about blah 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 and, and Burchett's like well you're a child you're a jerk blah whatever and then McCarthy uh, kind of walks away and won't address it anymore and then Burchett who is the, a favorite of reporters across the hill because he'll always stop. He'll answer all your questions. He'll talk, you know, as long as you want. I heard one reporter say um, he never knows anything, but he's friendly. So why not talk to him? Which is like kind of the long and the short of his whole shtick. And then for the rest of the day, he had like anywhere from, you know, 20 to 40 reporters kind of following him around trying to get the story. And what I think that is, I mean, partially it's just because it's like, I don't know, drama and exciting and like weird to see the our, our grown lawmakers like getting into a physical skirmish but it's also a reflection on how the shutdown stuff has become so boring and so iterative like it's the exact <laughs> same storyline now than it was before which is why you had all the giant crews you know cnn and stuff being like where's tim burchett like get me tim you know because like that's exciting like that's good coverage for the day <laughs> well i guess also we had that almost a month, I guess it lasted three, three weeks, basically, of there being no speaker and, you know, repeated failures to elect new speakers and, you know, congressional coverage by the standards of, you know, national network news has a hard time being that exciting. It's a, it can be, you know, depending on, um, depending on the details, it can be, a kind of a big deal in policy terms if you follow that stuff. But it's it's just there's no way to kind of to match that. You know, that was it was, you know, classic news story. Uh, a lot of drama, a lot of tension, the outcome genuinely unknown. And now, as you say, I guess they're they're still having the level of TV crews and everything. And now it's just, yeah, we 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 voted. It passed. Like whatever. So everybody's like hyped up to get the new I know. New and like, drama. It, you know, just to do a little curtain lift on this moment, I'm our only uh, TPM reporter at the Hill right now for just like kind of various reasons. And so, you know, it makes it 
it's it's physically like hard. I can only be in one place at a time. And it makes those moments where you get access to them, whether they're coming out of a meeting or going to a vote, it makes them like really high pressure because that's kind of your only shot. And so I was obviously like right kind of right there when all this Burchette stuff happened. And I had to kind of make a choice of like, do I kind of go all in on this Burchette thing and lose my opportunity to ask everyone else who's coming out of the meeting, like what's, you know, what's going to happen? Is Johnson going to get punished? Is this going to pass? Or kind of leave the Burchette thing and then get everybody else. And it is funny because in this moment, you've got these incentives pulling you in different direction, right? Because it's kind of like, okay, if I pull off to the side here and like tweet everything that's happening, there's like, you know, even though I have not really invested anything in my Twitter presence, there's like a good chance that that'll do numbers, right? And that'll like attract attention. And then, but then it's like, that's all I have to kind of show for the day. Everything else I I don't, so anyway, I ultimately kind of chose to like, that the Burchette thing was kind of, the emptier drama of the of the two things that were happening in the day. But it is an interesting kind of glimpse at, you know, the incentive structure. Like fundamentally, whether or not McCarthy threw an elbow, like it doesn't matter. McCarthy is not really is not anyone of any great importance in the House Republican conference anymore. Tim Burchett never was and like probably never will be. And, and like, and so what? So they don't like each other. So they're going to be like petulant to each other. Even the more interesting fact, like you mentioned that Adam Kinzinger wrote in his book that like McCarthy made a habit of kind of body checking him as soon as he became a never Trumper and, and became one of um, McCarthy's enemies. Like, that's funny. And that's interesting. And maybe like a little bit relevatory of like what a child McCarthy is. But and is it newsworthy? It's kind of like hard to make an argument that it is. I think maybe you could put together all of the Republican aggression of yesterday and make the case that this new Trumpian base, which is kind of bloodthirsty and violent, is like trickling upwards in this way. And that the the breakdowns of civility have now ushered in a new like caning each other on the floor era. And like that is of interest to me. But I don't know. It's just... It's, it's just interesting. It was interesting to see like the collective might of the biggest teams on the Hill then dedicated, you know, like the whole rest of their day to kind of like chasing this one relatively new member of Congress around and like asking him to kind of shit talk about Kevin McCarthy. <laughs> Let me ask you one question about McCarthy. It, it, there's is he still sometimes I get the sense based on body language and just other news organizations uh, reporting decisions, that McCarthy still carries a lot of heft in terms of the very, you know, what used to be the the dominant faction in the House. So, so that at least arguably, even though he is now just an ordinary member, he still has that influence. And so, you know, what he thinks, what he wants to happen still is a pretty big deal. You know, informal power versus formal power. Is that your sense of things? Or is it just kind of reflexes that people are used to several years that he was the big guy? So they're all the reporters all still following him around. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because we kind of almost have a one to one comparison here with Pelosi still being in the House, because I think they operate very differently. McCarthy was never had any kind of legislative chops, right? That was never part of his appeal. What I think has created, what has happened in the Republican conference is he still does, I mean, he, everyone who has a position of prominence like that, like, or reporters are always going to want to talk 
to them for the end of time. And McCarthy specifically really endeared himself to a bunch of these kind of very classic Beltway publications because he was like, I mean, leaking to them constantly, right? Like it's the the kind of like open secret that like, you know, Punchbowl, the the online thing and Kevin McCarthy, like two peas in a pod, right? Like that was his chosen kind of depository for spin that he wanted out there. But because there's no legislative heft in the Republican conference, his sway has made it into just kind of a Kevin's allies versus Kevin's enemies dynamic, um, where I don't know if you saw, but like at the tail end of all this ridiculous drama, like Burchett transpired that Burchett had been kicked out of this like morning workout group. um, And there's like some consternation. Like he says it's because the group is run by McCarthy allies and they're mad at him. And they say it's because he can't be trusted with off the record information, which honestly, I could see it going either way. But um, that's kind of how his power center has transpired. It's just created these schisms. Um, And most of the I mean, and by dint of that kind of most of the more powerful people in the House Republican conference are on McCarthy's side, because the other side is generally kind of new people or like, you know, or think of the people who ousted McCarthy, right? They either tend to be like, they're mostly kind of like fringy, like hard right type people who McCarthy hasn't done them any favors. They didn't have any power. And then he was kind of kept out of power after that by, you know, the the Nancy Maces and the Matt Gaetzes and people who are never going to have any power within the conference because they don't coalition build at all, right? It's all all about them all the time. So when that's your schism, it's just kind of like the more traditional power centers are on McCarthy's side, Um, which is funny because in the Democratic caucus, like, and we've talked about this on the show before, but Pelosi's still there, right? And she's still like around, but I don't think there's any real sense of like, she's the puppet master who's just like telling Hakeem Jeffries what to do. It's much more of this kind of, you know, like being, um, a, a mentoring a, role, sort yeah, of. Yeah, like a judge yeah. who's taken like senior status, right? Who gets called in on like the tricky stuff or the stuff that she has lots of expertise with. It's much more, it seems to be much more kind of traditionally political, whereas the Republican stuff is much more high school cafeteria. Well, it certainly seems, again, just from a distance, that McCart, to the extent that there is still this, you know, Kevin's allies, Kevin's enemies. We seem to the point where no one is, no one is any longer doing the twelve-dimensional chess. You know, Kevin's plotting to return to power. No one thinks that's going to happen. Presumably, not even Kevin McCarthy. That it's basically whether it's the people who ended his career or the guy who replaced him that he just wants to kind of fuck with everybody mm-hmm. and 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 be there and kind of just make trouble because he's mad and you know. We'd be mad too if that happened to us, right? That's my general sense. Does that seem kind of how this is playing out? Because as you said, it's not like there's going to be any policy, like don't right. do this policy because that's my that's my ride or die policy, right? Which also operates on the other side as well. Like it, we've said this before, but you know, it's it's easier for the Democrats to kind of be like kumbaya and unified when they've got no power in the House, right? They're just they're kind of locked into the minority. But yeah, I think. The biggest part is obviously how McCarthy went down. Like he thought and his allies thought that it was um, unfair and self-indulgent and pointless. And I think all those things are pretty objectively true. And now it's just, you know, what he's going to be the guy who's like, well, let's have Matt Gates at the table. Like the guy who single handedly kind of engineered his downfall. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Right, right. Okay, so so 
last question on this, and this is for our listeners. I mean, I, th- these things are these things are important in their own way, even though they seem like personalities and stuff like that. Do you have a sense, like, is there in the in that interregnum period after McCarthy, that three weeks between when McCarthy was ousted and when Johnson came in, the big dynamic seemed to be allies of Steve Scalise and allies of Kevin McCarthy with this kind of, you know, this quite small, free, you know, kind of rump freedom caucus, the people who, you know, uh, actually triggered, triggered the whole crisis. And a lot went back between those two things. And then Johnson, there was no Johnson faction or Johnson people. He just, you know, kind of everyone else was like dead on the floor and he happened to be alive and he just stuck up and grabbed the gavel and walked out of the room. Are you getting a sense like are are there Johnson people or is it still kind of thing where everybody's sort of in shock and he's the speaker and they're trying to move forward? But like, does he have allies? Is anybody really behind him or is it as nothing really coalesced to that point? Well, it's funny because it's the flip side of the coin that's been the source of his power thus far, which is that everybody likes him. So there's not really a specific you know, as far as I can tell, a specific kind of pod of of supporters of schemers. It's more just kind of like genuinely everyone in the caucus does seem to like him. Like whenever you ask even the kind of the hard right, like when I was talking to Bob Good about this yesterday, he was one of the McCarthy ousters. He was just like, oh, well, you know, Mike's a good egg. Like he's a nice guy. That's how everybody feels. So I think. And sort of across the spectrum of Republicans. Yep, exactly. So at least right now, while things are so fresh, you do have this sense of people don't have a big drive to like embarrass him or to kind of uh, to punish him in any meaningful way. And then I mean, that hasn't stopped the House Freedom Caucus people from like yapping a little bit from like saying, you know, saying they're displeased. And that's why I think that coupled with the fact that I think 93 Republicans voted against the CR yesterday spells like enormous trouble for him come midwinter because, you know, being a nice guy is not is not going to keep him in the seat forever. But yeah, it's just it's so everything's so new. It's so if it really does feel kind of tenuous, like almost what I imagine, like succession squabbles and some like royal regime feel like, you know, everything just is very unsettled at this moment. So what are what are what are the next steps in in what well what is happening in the house and then the broader issue we're still playing out this agreement that was made last spring over the debt ceiling which you know now we're doing these CRs because they couldn't get the stuff done that they needed to get done under the agreement but not too long into the new year you have this final hard deadline where you have these big across the board cuts so what is the you know, now we're we're uh, six weeks till the end of the year. Walk us through what happens next. What are the big, you know, kind of tent uh, tent poles in the calendar? Well, the the shutdown deadline is still on Saturday, and so the Senate needs to pass the CR now. Um, based on everything we've heard, I would be like kind of shocked if there's any more drama than maybe Rand Paul is kind of a dick and like does all the doesn't let them do it procedurally fast. So they have to finish things up, you know, right before midnight on Saturday or something. But Schumer and McConnell are working together on this. Um, You know, as we've kind of said, it's the best possible deal for Senate Democrats. Um, You know, clean CR, no poison pills, no cuts in spending. They didn't have to give up anything. Republicans are kind of in the same boat. So we expect the CR to pass in the Senate pretty easily. Then the first part of the CR expires at the end of January, the second part in February. 
And that's when things are really going to come to a head. Because as you say, technically, the punishments in the debt ceiling agreement, which are big across the board cuts that, you know, specifically kind of target the Defense Department and and places that Republicans would be concerned about. The sequestration technically takes effect if we're still under CRs in January, but doesn't actually kick in until the end of April. So we're just at that point, we're going to be getting to the end of the line in terms of like, you just can't have a CR. And it takes a ton of time for them to pass these appropriations bills. So if there's any chance of avoiding those draconian cuts, you would think, you know, there can't be any even kind of short term punting type that, oh, we're gonna do a CR for a few weeks. Like, I, I think they need to kind of get going on the appropriations bills, um, whether they be separate or in a minibus or an omnibus or what have you. So that's when things are I think that's when the precarity of Johnson's situation is just going to come into such stark relief because that's a big legislative lift for someone who's experienced at doing legislative lifts and he is not. And, you know, he's got a a few months to catch up, but this is the time of year where Congress is like really not in session very much at all because, you know, we have all the holiday stretch and, and they're home for a lot of it. So that's when the kind of you know, rubber meets the road. And we're also, you know, it's funny because as much as the Senate has been more together than the House, the Senate hasn't gotten a lot of attention because they're just kind of, you know, they wait until the Republican speaker makes a deal with Democrats and then they kind of just pass that and and that's how it goes. And now I think we'll start to see more Senate stuff as well. You know, they've been because they've been moving their appropriations bills with much greater success in the House because they're sticking to the the spending limits established in the debt ceiling bill and everything. But, you know, it's not like that's going to be a drama free process. Like that's going to be some kind of smooth bipartisan agreement on everything. Like some of the agency spending bills are just every year more controversial than others because they, you know, they focus on agencies that more kind of neatly uh, divide down partisan lines and everything. So, yeah, I think January and February is going to be like kind of a mess. That's when like things are things are really going to kind of um, uh, start getting dramatic. Well, and it's also when, well, two things are going to happen. You're going to have, we're going to move more decisively into the campaign season. You're going to start, you're, we're going to be having primaries, uh, Republic, I mean, sort of, right? I mean, we're kind of, we have, uh, I, I guess, theoretically, we have uh, a couple you know, a couple lightweight candidates challenging Joe Biden. So some of the some of the Democratic uh, primaries will be nominally contested. And then you have the whatever it is that's happening on the Republican side. But you start having those contests and you will also start moving into the real trials for Donald Trump. So and 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 unquestionably, the the sort of the kinetics created by both of those things are not going to make these spending things simpler by any stretch of the imagination. Right. I'm not sure they need to be a lot more complicated for things to break down, but they're not going to, it's not, it's not going to make them uh, easier. More of this scintillating content after these messages. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Back to the show. So 
I think that's a, a good bridge to uh, Donald Trump, who is out there pretty dramatically upping his rhetoric. You know, the, the way these things have worked, I guess, I guess going back a couple years is that you just have a normal ongoing dialogue of him saying really crazy, violent stuff. And then occasionally something will happen. I mean, there was actually something a few weeks ago. I don't even remember what it was now. Something will happen where the, I I guess it was actually, well, I mean, talk about totally insane things when he said that General Milley should be executed for, I guess, saying mean things about Donald Trump. And so he'll say one of these things and it'll reach some level that mainstream media will 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 say, ah, okay, this is different. What Look at the crazy things Trump is saying. And the latest is this vermin thing where he said, you know, kind of his enemies are you know, Marxist, radical, Antifa, they're like vermin, they're sort of destroying the country from within and all this kind of stuff. Is that, is that stuff, is it registering on Capitol Hill? Or is it just noise that kind of everybody understands and they know he's crazy or they love him and so it just doesn't matter? Definitely not on Capitol Hill. And it's funny because this is always one of the biggest kind of Twitter critiques. It's always like, well, how come every time you see X, Y, and Z, like you don't press them about Trump's comments? And like, I mean, the reality is a lot of the times they'll say things like, I hadn't seen it. Okay. Like, what do you do that? And you'd be like, oh, I have it on my phone. They're like, oh, I got to get to a meeting. Right. I mean, but it's also this thing of they, they don't care. I mean, it doesn't matter. Right. Trump is... He so benefits from the two sides of the coin. The, the first being our, I think, like good sense national conversation about how much do you platform him and what do you do with a president who lies like this? That's not something that we've really had before. And with a lot of people, even writing into TPM, even still, who yell at us whenever we kind of cover Trump saying like, well, you shouldn't give him any attention. You shouldn't give him any spotlight. And then the other side of that is that then when he does get covered... He's always covered. It's like the the don't take him literally thing, right? Like he says bombastic, you know, unbelievable things every day. So I don't they don't warrant the same kind of attention that they would if it was a normal politician saying these things. You know, it's almost like exclamation point fatigue, which, you know, it's been coming up. The comparison I keep seeing people making is like, can you imagine if Trump's vermin comment was was covered like Hillary's deplorables? comment, which I think is an imperfect comparison for a couple of reasons. One being the media environment is so primed to only take certain kind of comments really seriously. And the gaffe is one of those, right? Like when somebody makes a big political gaffe, the unsaid textual assumption is that that's something they really think. And it just, it burbled out. It like, it, it, it escaped the carefully kind of, um, curated, protected, consultanted shell that every politician has and gave us a rare look into their inner life. And so for Hillary, when it was the deplorables thing, yikes, she didn't mean to say it, which means that's how she really feels. Which She thinks these people are scum, ties into already very neat narratives about how kind of like Republicans can say that people who live in cities are like criminals, like swimming in, in oceans of shit with rats. But if any, if a Democrat tried to say anything bad about rural America, it's like, are you kidding me? 
they just dis- yeah, disrespecting the real Americans. other Americans. No, I've always this has always this has always been <laughs> this has always been a hang up of mine going back decades. And you see it today as clear as anything. As you said, Democrats are in this thing where if they say anything critical, let alone anything condescending about people who live in rural America, people who live in the middle of the country, you know, however you want to define it. And yet it is just a staple of Republican discourse, almost the core of it, that their enemies are, you know, disgusting, perverts, criminals, uh, all these things. I mean, even even like, you know, whether it's the man-hating bitches who want abortion or the disgusting gay people. And, and, you're, and it, it's, it's so crazy. They're like, oh, but we're not, we're disrespecting Republic. I mean, it's, it, it is, it's one of the, it's one of these crazy things. And, and what is really crazy about it or what is so embedded about it is that it's something that most middle-of-the-road Democrats, and even, in some ways, Democrats across the political spectrum completely yeah. buy into. You know, it's, it's, you even see it with, um, with there's, there's almost as big a, you know, conversation on the progressive left of, oh, you know, you Hillary types condescending to these to these, you know, working Americans in the rest of the country when they could be enlisted in a, you know, a more traditional class politics if you, you know, kind of snooty coastal liberals weren't always talking down to them. It, it's just, yeah. it's just a crazy thing and everybody buys it. So uh, the end of the, uh, what I was saying is basically you've got that dynamic with a deplorable thing, um, but also the idea that it was, a gaffe that easily broke along these narrative lines and these like permission structures we're really familiar with. Trump's vermin comment was scripted and it was obviously scripted because you can really tell when Trump is talking off the teleprompter and when he's not. So those two things get treated completely different, right? If he had said the vermin thing, if it had slipped out while he was like working the rope line or something, I still don't think it would be covered the way it would if a serious politician had said something like that, but it would have been different. But because it's Trump, because he says crazy things, um, because we have not figured out how to cover him in a way that isn't just like pushing the panic button every day or ignoring him completely. It's just it's like the Millie thing. I mean, it's like his, you know, I'm going to mobilize the the Justice Department and indict my enemies. It's like I'm going to use the National Guard to like kill protesters or whatever. It's just kind of it all gets just sublimated into the the cloud of noise around Trump and nothing is ever taken seriously. Yeah, I I do think you know one thing with well, one thing about Trump, I don't think he would even know the word vermin. Oh, so not, Stephen I'm Miller all that, over like, that, right? He, he he totally totally totally. I mean, you actually have to be, you know, relatively acquainted with early mid 20th century, you know, uh, totalitarian rhetoric to even know where that comes in, right? So, of course, that's nothing he would ever, you know, like what is believable for Trump is when he says shithole countries. That is a, that's, that's a New York kind of talk. That's, and, and it, it's not something like, oh my God, remember when Hitler said shithole countries, right? I mean, it's just, it has, it has no, it, it doesn't refer to any historical thing the way that, that vermin does. What I worry or what I hope 
Democrats and just all Trump opponents don't do. I saw a lot of interviews over the last week that were like, um, oh, you know, Trump is signaling with this rhetoric that comes from the 1930s, what he's planning to do. And this is a telltale about the rise of authoritarianism. And that is all right. You know, that is all right. But anybody who speaks that language, they're already opposing Trump. Right. I mean, come on. No, we're not. We're not talking about like, oh, remember the sort of the 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 vocabulary of authoritarianism in the 1920s. Dude, you have lost the script if you're talking about that. I and, and the other thing is, and I think we're all we're all familiar with this from Trump's first term. And again, that's why Stephen Miller or whoever it was wrote that into the speech. You have a constant flow of outrages, provocations, and then you have kind of normal people saying, oh my God, oh my God, this is so bad. And, and, and you know, kind of talking about these kind of rarefied ideas. And it's Trump's the actor and everyone else is the reactor. And that dynamic is, turns out, in most cases, to be much more important than the content of what's said. I mean, having said all that, it's not like everybody says, oh, nothing matters. Well, it does matter because it, we've seen that in our politics uh, in the last couple of years, people think Republicans are scary. And Trump being the head of the Republican Party is, is, a, is a big part of that. I mean, what I would recommend to Democrats is you want to take that, take these comments in a, you know, pick out the comments that have the most resonance and change up the dialogue from what I think a lot of Democrats and I'll just say normal people do, which is, can't you see how outrageous this is? That's, you're, you know, that's no one, no one, no one cares about that thing. Like, don't you think this is outrageous as I, as I think? Well, apparently not, right? Because it doesn't seem to be hurting him. But you have a series of things like that his people are planning, you know, apparently planning on, on invoking the Insurrection Act on the first day of president to kind of, you know, call out the army on the people who inevitably will be protesting his re-inauguration if, if he is, if he is elected, God forbid, uh, you know, executing his former chairman of the Joint Chiefs. You've got a series of, of these kind of things. I think you want to add, you know, you want a an ad campaign. Like, who's, he, who's Trump going to kill first? Who's, who's Trump going to murder first when, he, when he's elected? And that, I think, that is something that at least people will say, well, what do you, what do you, what do you mean? And then you kind of put out the quotes and you kind of, you know, that's the, that's the thing. You have to, you have to find a way you, you know, they, the Democrats, whoever we're talking about, need to find a way to go on offense, not just in the sense of being really upset and outraged, but rhetorically on the, on the offense, making the other side, you know, answer questions, kind of turning things. And so far, I'm not, I'm not seeing that. Yeah, look, I think the other piece of this to also kind of harken back to the deplorable comparison is she said that, what, in October before the election? Yep. 
right? I mean, timing is everything. Mm -hmm. If Trump had said this vermin thing next October, even next September, I think it would have had massive reverberations. I mean, as you say, I'm sure it's already been neatly clipped into what's going to be an ad for Biden kind of compiling a bunch of pro-extremism little uh, sound bites, but which is also like part of the reason why I, as we discussed last episode, I'm just like not as panicked as everybody else about Joe Biden's stuff, uh, his bad poll numbers, you know, because all of his weakness right now is coming from like disaffected Democrats, low information voters, people who don't vote in midterms, um, people who aren't very politically engaged. And it's just, I mean, this happens every election. We are going to inevitably reach a point where people are paying more attention. And when he says stuff like this, it does like it trickles down to even those people as well. And as much as during his kind of campaign and tenure, reporters were absolutely enamored with the framing of like a pivot towards restraint, like a pivot towards message discipline from Trump. He has never once proven himself able to do that. Um, you know, whether it be talking about vermin or forgetting that he's not supposed to brag about overturning Roe, you know, whatever it be like that's that stuff is going to happen. It's going to happen when people are paying attention, when the inherent inequalities in our media system that hurt Democrats so, so badly um, are a little less asymmetrical because what Biden has to say will suddenly become more important and newsworthy at that juncture. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think what you said is right. I think, you know, you stick to the game plan, like the game plan that has worked every time is that Republicans are scary and they want to do like weird, unsettling things. And they're being kind of open about wanting to do those things. And as we've seen for a few cycles now, when you remind people of that, and even when that's juxtaposed with Democrats as boring, unexciting old dudes, like that is still the side that wins out. Yeah, no question. And I think it's telling just, and that's why I asked you that question. Like, is any of the Trump drama operative up on Capitol Hill? And I suspect, and I think you confirmed that on both sides, mm-hmm. it's like Trump didn't even exist. And, 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 and I think that, I mean, on the one hand, he's clearly paradoxically benefiting from that a great deal. But that also shows you that, I don't know, it, it shows you, A, how far I think we are from a campaign context, but also, and this cuts both ways, I don't necessarily say this as a, as a positive thing, but if you look at the political dynamics that we're in, I don't think anybody on either side of the political aisle up there thinks Donald Trump is going to be president again. And, and you know, conventional wisdom is often wrong. So I'm not saying, oh, and that tells us that obviously it can't happen. That's not what I'm saying at all. I, I'm, I'm saying that, and this is maybe an argument that we're sleepwalking into a catastrophe, and we, we absolutely may well be, but it's some part of the uncanniness of this political moment and the fact that he can say these things and promise to do these things and kind of everybody's like, oh, wait, we're still, I'm still worrying about, you know, whether this defrocked speaker is body checking this other, you know, backbench weirdo because no one thinks that's going to happen. And um, that's weird. That's weird. That's a really, it's a good point. And it kind of, I think there's a parallel that's going on in Congress right now, which is 
the Senate Judiciary's effort to um, bring in like Leonard Leo and, and Harlan Crow to subpoena them and actually do some Supreme Court oversight. It's so interesting because the effort has been so like delayed and limp now that it's here, you know, and, and Republicans are kind of easily messing with the gears by uh, proposing like a, a ton of amendments and things like that. But it's got a similar sense to what you're saying, which is Democrats' hearts are like kind of clearly not in it. And like you say, there is a more comforting and a more kind of disconcerting interpretation of that, right? The same way we might be sleepwalking into an election or people who know about politics are like not actually that concerned. In this case, it's kind of like, well, are they just being like mealy mouth Dick Durbin types who are don't really want to stir the pot and so are, are not going to punch too hard? Or... Is it the reality that they know these subpoenas will be quashed by Republicans in the Senate and that oversight of the Supreme Court will only meaningfully happen if Democrats win the House next year? Right. It's like it's one of those things where you don't want to lull yourself into a sense of complacency because there is always the, the darker interpretation. that, uh, And it's not like Trump hasn't squeaked through before. Right. But when you look at the political calculus there, it does seem to indicate to you, you either got you've either got politicians who are not really acting like politicians or you've got politicians who are kind of subconsciously acting on their at, at this point, they're pretty strongly, if privately held beliefs about how things are going to shake out. Yeah, no, that's something we should, we should, we should, it's, it's a, I was going to say we should talk about it in the next episode. And I think we should, but it is, it is a, it's a very difficult thing to talk about because in some ways we're talking mm -hmm. about what's not there or what is, what is clearly an unstated assumption that we can just infer right. from everyone's actions, but it's hard to know quite where to go with it from there. Because you can just say, for whatever, whatever reason, no one seems to take this possibility seriously, and that's weird. And something that and why don't they? everyone involved has incentive not to be candid not to about, talk about, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. No, that is, it's funny that you actually, you know, maybe, maybe for the next episode, we'll, we'll work out some very thought out script <laughs> for how to discuss this issue because it's, 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 as we're kind of doing now, it's so easy to, um, uh, to have it just be sort of airy fairy and, you know, you're not really grabbing onto something of something hard and of substance, but you even see that in the way that Republicans react to all the Democratic bedwetting about Biden, his age, all this kind of stuff, that if Republicans believe that and believe he's doing as poorly as, as he, to many people he seems to be, and they claim, they wouldn't, they wouldn't keep repeating that because that means he's done or he's, un, you know, they are, their messaging is of the sort that seems to look forward to years more of Biden being president and how to beat up on someone that they don't think is going anywhere. In any case, it's a weird question. And I want to emphasize again, just because political people don't, just because sort of political insiders and, and political stakeholders aren't taking this seriously does not mean I think they're necessarily right. I, th I think, I mean, obviously Trump can win. It's, it's more part of the weirdness of this moment that you have a range of assumptions. 
you have you have facts on the ground you have pretty deeply held assumptions many of which are totally you can't fit them together but they're all out there and none of them add up and that's one that's something that makes the political moment so weird mm-hmm. that's uh, that's kind of the only way I can put it. In any case, we are going to put this episode out of its mercy because clearly we're I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm speculating in real time about things that I'm having a hard time getting a handle on. But I do think that is a that's a real thing. And we, we are going to come back to that. Uh, I think that's all we got for this episode. Um, anything else we need to to hit before we before we sign nope, off? That's it seems it. not. Okay, well, uh, thank you again for joining us for another episode. And we will talk to you next week. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen. 